The job of a rural hospital leader is taxing. Smaller teams mean more work for each person, longer days, later nights, and fewer people among which to spread out the workload. Rural hospital CEOs live, eat, breathe, and sleep their jobs. So how do we reduce burnout among rural hospital leaders and sustain them for the long haul? With training and preparation programs, peer connections, and industry-level support. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 18 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. You know, Rachel, as a rural hospital leader myself for uh, the past 10 years and CEO now for uh, almost a year, uh, I know that this is a tough job and it's a tough uh, industry to be in. And you know what? It can really take its toll um, without the proper support, education, and peer network uh, to help you get through. And today we have someone with us who is all too familiar with those struggles, but whose work is specifically dedicated to overcoming them. That's right, Rachel. Our guest today is Bill Oxier, CEO of the Center for Rural Health Leadership and host of the Rural Health Leadership Radio Podcast. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Bill. Hi. Uh, good morning, Rachel. Good morning, JJ. Uh, thanks for having me here. Well, thanks for being here, Bill. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at the Center for Rural Health Leadership? Thank you. And your podcast. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, JJ, you're uh, been a guest on my podcast, so uh, paybacks are hell, as they might say sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. I can't wait. <laughs> yes, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to have a voice here on your program. Uh, I come from humble beginnings. I grew up in uh, rural southern Illinois. Most people don't realize how far south the state of Illinois goes. When you say Illinois, most people think of Chicago. But the southern tip of Illinois is where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers come together. So where I grew up is actually further south than Louisville, Kentucky, and everyone speaks with a southern accent. It's very uh, poor socioeconomic area. Uh, I grew up in a family. I had uh, two brothers and one sister. My my dad was a World War II veteran. He was bivocational. He worked for Standard Oil uh, delivering petroleum products to farmers, uh, but he's also a Baptist preacher, a country preacher, uh, wow. uh, going around to different churches. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom before that terminology had ever been invented. That was just kind of the norm back then. And and we didn't have much, uh, but we had what we needed. We had a garden where we grew a lot of the food that we ate and everything. But um, when I was in high school, I got so sick and tired of people asking me what I was going to do after I graduated from hospital. I jokingly say I end uh, from high school. I think I just said hospital. Uh, <laughs> I ended up in the hospital. Uh, and, but I was there applying for a job. Somewhere in my 17-year-old brain, this pragmatic gene popped up and told me, you know, I, I knew for some reason I was interested in a career in healthcare, but I didn't know enough about it. The only thing I knew was mom taking us to the doctor as kids, and I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. For one thing, I didn't think I was smart enough to get into medical school, but all the doctors I knew, all they did was work. And I wanted to do more than work. So I thought, what are the other options? So I went out to the local hospital and applied for a job. And lo and behold, they hired me as a nurse's aide. Hmm. And so if you were a male patient uh, between uh, January of 1972 and September of 1974, never needed to use a bedpan, odds are 
we've met. Uh, oh the, nurse, <laughs> the, the nurses loved to torture me with all the uh, uh, so-called uh, undesirable tasks. <laughs> But that launched me with a career in healthcare. I went on to college uh, and worked my way through school. Uh, I ended up working in industry, uh, becoming the CEO of a surgical device manufacturing company with global distribution. I was fortunate to travel the world to see how healthcare was practiced in different geographic cultures, let alone other cultures of urban and rural. Uh, so it was uh, quite fascinating. I always continued my education, a continuous learner, getting uh, not only my bachelor's degree, but a master's degree in communication and a doctorate in leadership. So, uh, and that led me to the Center for Rural Health Leadership, where I am now, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, more in a little bit. Well, Bill, that's uh, fantastic and uh, certainly a, a wonderful background and a, a very, very successful career uh, in the healthcare industry. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, uh, let's start with a why. Now, now we do this on every episode so we get to know uh, our audience can get to know you a little bit better as well. Um, so, Bill, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of the bed in the morning? That's a great question. I love that question. And when I work with rural health leaders, I always ask that question too. What What is your why? So I better have an answer for this. Or otherwise, I'm a, pretty much a hypocrite there. So for me, my why is it's all about my my family and my faith and my roots in rural America. So for me, as I mentioned, I grew up in a small town in Southern Illinois. Uh, and the the little hospital there, it's still going. Uh, it wasn't called a critical access hospital when I was a kid. That hadn't been invented yet, but it is a critical access hospital now. And when my little brother uh, got stung by a bee for the very first time, we didn't know that he was allergic to bee stings. Uh, but he, he is, and he had a reaction. Mom threw him into the car, ran him out to the ER of that little hospital. They gave him a shot of epinephrine, and everything was fine. If she would have had to drive him to the next town over where the next hospital was, we might have a different family story to tell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My dad, when he retired from Standard Oil, he was, he was still uh, being a country preacher. Uh, I don't know how it is in uh, your neck of the woods there, but in Southern Illinois, sometimes men do strange things when they yeah. retire. And yeah. my dad got into cutting wood. Uh, oh, wow. Why? I don't know. He bought a chainsaw oh. and he liked to cut wood. He didn't sell wood. He just... <laughs> Cut, cut wood. And so uh, sometimes he would come home and his back would be hurting. And so he'd kind of press his back against the door frame with a little pressure that back pain would subside until one day mom walked in and she could tell something was wrong. And uh, she said, Bill, what's, what's going on? And he said, well, my back pain isn't going away. In fact, it's getting worse. So she knew something was wrong. She did her thing. She threw him in the car, ran him out to the ER of that rural, rural hospital, and lo and behold, he was having a heart attack. Mm. And all that back pain previously were mild heart attacks, but this wow. was a big this was a big one. So they stabilized him. They did exactly what a rural hospital is supposed to do. They stabilized him until they could transport him to a larger urban center uh, where he went on and, and uh, they took care of him. So they did exactly what they were supposed to do. Without that rural hospital there that mom could have got him to, if she had, would have had to take him to the next town over, we might have a different family story. And my mom, uh, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. 
And as is often the case, by the time they figure out it's ovarian cancer, it's too late. And that was exactly what happened for her. Her last several weeks of her life, she spent as a patient in that small rural hospital. And mom had become an avid gardener. Uh, not so much because she loved gardening because it was a cheap way to feed all of us kids growing up, but she kept, she kept gardening and everything. And members from the church, they knew what was going on. And they asked the CEO of the hospital, would you mind if we plant a flower garden outside of Elsie's room? And he said, sure, go ahead. So they planted this beautiful garden of flower, blooming flowers and bushes and everything. So the last few weeks of my mother's life, she could look out that window and see things that gave her beauty and peace. And I guarantee you that would not have happened at a large urban hospital. The other thing, too, my, my grandpa was a World War I veteran. My dad was a World War II veteran. My brother was a Vietnam veteran. I have uncles, cousins, so many people in my family who have served in the military. And as you know, over half of our veterans live in rural America. Right. So with the risk that rural hospitals face of closing, I owe it to my family, my friends, and our veterans to do everything I can to help them be successful rural health leaders to help their organizations thrive. That's my why. Phil, that is such a uh powerful, uh, so emotional and uh, personal, but it's a powerful why. That could just be our episode. I mean, that was great. I mean, that, that is <laughs> that is fantastic. And that really is at the heart of what we are trying to do and, Bill, what you're trying to do uh, with raising the awareness of the importance of rural hospitals. And so we know, uh, you know, Rachel and I, we've had a chance to meet with you and uh, look at your background. We know that you've dedicated a lot of your time and effort to helping uh, rural hospital CEOs and leaders. Um, so in your mind, why is this so important of an issue to focus on in rural communities and rural hospitals? And um, in your mind, do, do, do rural hospital CEOs struggle more than urban and suburban counterparts? You know, I don't know if I'd use the word struggle, but they have more challenges, that's for sure, because you got to do more with less, basically. You know, I, I always joke uh, if if a, a CEO, a rural hospital CEO invites me to their home, I always say, I want to see your closet. And they say, what are you talking about? I said, well, I, you got so many hats you wear. I want to see where you <laughs> store all those. <laughs> you know, because you do, you, you have to wear so many hats. You don't have a, a staff or a specialist that you can delegate things to. And uh, a rural hospital, especially a critical access hospital, is just more complicated with the reimbursement and how all that works. You know, if you look at all the rural hospitals that have closed, there's been over 130 rural hospitals close in the last 10 years, and 40% of the rural hospitals that are exist are at a high risk of closing, you know. So, I mean, we got some problems here. And when you look at a hospital that closes, the main reason is that money. They, they can't figure out how to make money uh, for whatever reason. And it all boils down to leadership because everybody deals with the same struggles. You might have different payer mixes and, and all that sort of thing, but it's the decisions you make that on how to uh, delegate and implement the procedures and policies you need to have financial success that makes the difference. So leadership 
is truly the biggest predictor of a hospital's success. And the more Mm -hmm. we can shore up the skill set, the knowledge base, and the confidence of those rural health leaders, the more we can assure that those hospitals won't close. So, Bill, what are some of the specific issues? You just mentioned a couple of them um, on a broader scale, but what are some of the specific issues rural hospital leaders are facing that really set their experience apart from that of non-rural hospital leaders and CEOs? Sure. That's a great question, Rachel. Thank you. So one of the things, if you go to any rural health conference, whether it's a national conference or a Michigan Rural Health Association conference, any conference, there's always going to be a presentation on recruiting and retaining providers and professional staff. But have you ever heard a presentation on recruiting and retaining CEOs? No. No. No, I've heard no. a few conversations, but I've never heard a presentation about it. Yet when you look at hospital CEO turnover, and uh, it leads all industries in the United States, and that's at the American College of Healthcare Executives. You can go to their website. They track hospital CEO turnover, and, and that's all hospitals, both rural and urban. For the last five years, it's averaged 18%. Uh, that was a couple of uh, seven years ago, I think it was 20%, but it's it's always right around 20, 18 to 20%. So in other words, one in five hospital CEOs are going to leave their position. There's all kinds of studies that talk about the ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, any initiative that that CEO had put in place comes to a screeching halt. Odds are within six months, another C-level executive is going to depart from that facility, causing either greater chaos. So there's, there's all kinds of studies and research to show what the ramifications are. It doesn't matter what the reason why that CEO left, whether it was of their own volition or someone else's. Uh, it's a problem. And that's all hospitals. If you look at uh, rural hospitals, in some states, it's as high as 40%. And so hospital CEO turnover is a major issue. On top of that, uh, there was a study conducted a couple of years ago that looked at rural hospital CEOs specifically. And 48%, nearly half, of all rural hospital CEOs were first-time CEOs. Hmm. Nearly half of all rural hospital CEOs are first-time CEOs. JJ, that fits you perfectly, right? That it describes does. you. Yes, and, absolutely. And so, so when you think about it, you have a very high turnover rate, and you have a, a very, very high rate of first-time CEOs. That's not the best recipe for success. So the more we can help those first, especially those first-time CEOs, because even when you're a first-time CEO, even if you've been doing it for 20 or 30 years, but you've only done it at one hospital, obviously you're doing something right or you wouldn't still be there, right? But you still, you just have the perspective of that one hospital. So, Mm -hmm. and if you've only been there a year or six months, I mean, you still have, you definitely have a very limited perspective. Uh, So the more we can shore up those first-time CEOs, uh, leadership skills and knowledge base, and the more we can promote succession planning so and help aspiring CEOs be ready to roll when that opportunity comes, I believe that the more p- positive impact we can have on the su- success of our rural hospitals. So, Bill, tell us more about the work that you do at the Center for Rural Health Leadership. Um, when was it started? Uh, how did it come to be? 
Yeah, thanks for asking that question. So the Center for Rural Health Leadership is it's brand new. It just started January 1st, 2021. So this is breaking news for your podcast. This is the first time I've ever you heard it here first. It. Folks. Exactly. exactly. And so the Center of uh, Rural Health Leadership is a collaboration. It's a collaboration between the National Rural Health Association and my company, the Dynamic Leadership Academy. About 11 years ago, the folks at the NRHA, they do an awesome job of advocating on behalf of rural hospitals and clinics and influencing policy. But they knew they needed to do more. So about 11 years ago, they created a foundation within the NRHA, and its sole purpose was to identify uh, uh, new and emerging rural health leaders that could use additional training and support. And so they're trying to provide the leadership training and support as well as uh, making a foundation with funding to help make that happen, okay? So it took a while to do that. They did start the NRHA Fellowship, uh, which is an excellent program for any rural health leader that you can find out on their website. But to put an actual program together specifically geared to help support rural hospital CEOs took a while. And with my passion and advocacy for leadership, uh, I've been pushing for this. So we did create the NRHA uh, Rural Hospital CEO Certification Program and launched that just a little bit over a year ago. And the program has grown tremendously. The results have been incredible. And so we decided that let's make this more formal and create the Center for Rural Health Leadership to manage this CEO certification program and other certification programs for other rural health leaders as well. So we are uh, starting our third cohort uh, in March for the CEO certification program. And in uh, April, we are launching the very first rural hospital CNO certification program for chief nursing officers and nurse leaders. And then in May, we're launching the Rural Hospital CFO certification program for chief financial officers or uh, controllers, uh, a person in a leadership role in the financial realm for the hospital. And we've got other ideas on the shelf, but it's all based on membership feedback. It's not that this is Bill's idea or this is Alan's idea or somebody else. It's based on the feedback of the members. What do you need? And the problem is uh, I'm also a part-time professor, okay, and and I guess what I teach? Leadership Leadership. uh, in graduate school uh, at the University of Maryland Global Campus. And so the I, I know a lot of other professors, and and one of the top MHA programs, uh, I one of the professors I'm friends with, and I said, "What do you teach the students about critical access hospitals?" And he looked at me and he said, "What's a critical access hospital?" Oh my! Right? So, oh no! <laughs> you know, so there are academic programs are not geared to teach specific. To rural hospitals. I'm also Mm -hmm. a board member of the American College of Healthcare Executives, and we have great programs. Great, I was a programs chair, so I better say they're great programs. Uh, Exactly. But there's nothing there geared towards rural hospitals. A lot of great information, but it's not geared towards rural hospitals. And as we talked about in the very beginning, rural hospitals are unique, they're different. And so this training 
and education and support is truly geared towards leaders working in rural hospitals, and it's truly making a difference. Bill, I look forward to my chief nursing officer, my chief financial officer, and myself attending this uh, it uh, sounds like amazing training. So um, I'm going to I'm gonna be talking to you about this a little bit after the program. Well, we'd w- love to welcome you and your team, JJ. Absolutely. So now that we know more about the Center for Rural Health Leadership and we kind of have that established, tell us about some of the, um, in addition to, you know, the certification programs, but also your work um, and your podcast, I think, as well, is probably a good example of this. But what are some of the key strategies and tactics that you employ to help build up and support rural hospital leaders. That's kind of the birth of your podcast as part of that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, the birth of my podcast, I was actually trying to get the CEO of this rural hospital down in South Florida. I don't know if you know where Lake Okeechobee is in South Florida. So uh, it's out in the Everglades. All there are are alligators, python snakes, and and a few sugarcane fields. I hope to never know where that is. (laughs) Never. Never. And I asked him, I, you know, I was trying to actually get him as a, as a coaching client uh, for my leadership development work that I do. And, and so I asked him, I said, what's one of your biggest challenges running a, a rural hospital in the middle of nowhere out here? And he said, really, it's finding out what other rural hospital CEOs and other rural hospital leaders are doing that's working, what they've tried that didn't work. He said, sometimes I feel like it's almost like we keep it a secret from each other. And, it's true. and it's true. so it could be very isolating. He said, you know, I can go to meetings and conferences. That's when we had this conversation, you could actually do that. You could actually go to meetings and conferences. Yeah. And, yeah. and okay. he said, In the before times. Exactly. But he said, you know, that takes time and money. And I don't always have time or money. So I wish there was a way to share that information and it didn't cost anything. So in my brain, I'm thinking, well, yeah, sure. We all want great value without having to pay for it. How in the heck are you going to do that? So the next day, I was going for a run, listening to one of my favorite podcasts, when all of a sudden this light bulb went off. I thought, gosh, I wonder if anybody's doing a podcast on uh, rural health leadership. So that was one of the quickest runs home I've ever done. I <laughs> I Googled it. I couldn't find anything. And so the next day, Rural Health Leadership Radio was born. And uh, so I've created a nonprofit. Rural Health Leadership Radio is a 501c3 nonprofit. And the first month we were on the air, I had a total of 24 downloads. All right. Since you know, you have your podcast, you know what downloads mean. That means how many times it was listened to. Now, 24 mm-hmm. downloads is not very much, let's face it, right? But I was ecstatic because sure. I don't have 24 people in my family, so I knew someone from outside <laughs> of my family had tuned in and listened. And so That's great. now, uh, a little over four and a half years later, uh, you know, we, we we still have a small audience, but we are averaging about three thousand downloads a month uh, for episodes. So, uh, that's great. And, and to deliver that value, to share best practices. I mean, our mission statement is to improve the world by engaging rural health leaders in conversations, learning, and research. And the podcast, in a big way, helps us do that. So that's the Rural Health Leadership Radio uh, podcast. I also my Dynamic Leadership Academy, I still do. I love working one-on-one with CEOs. I also love working with the leadership team, and that's where I spend most of my time there, uh, is through a process that's usually over 6 to 12 months that I work with the uh, leadership team. 
to, uh, for example, one hospital in Michigan, a critical access hospital they worked in in Michigan, they wanted to improve their uh, employee engagement scores. And as we know, if you want to improve employee engagement, it starts at the top with leadership engagement. So we started with the senior uh, executive team there and on a, through a 12-month process, we worked on leadership engagement in a variety of ways. And they used the Press Ganey uh, instrument for measuring employee mm-hmm. engagement. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Employee engagement improved, and, and and they met a lot of the metrics that we were looking at measuring. So then we rolled it out to the next level of directors and managers there, and it's having a very, very, very positive impact on this hospital, and it's had a tremendously positive impact during the COVID pandemic, helping them be united as a team. In fact, I had multiple members of the senior leadership team either email me or call me saying, Thank God we were working with you before the pandemic because it has made such a difference the wow. way we've been able to work together during these difficult times. So that that's phenomenal. That's some of the stuff I do. You know, one of the things that we touched on just a little bit earlier were turnover rates. So, you know, the question I'm going to ask you is, have you seen any major change in turnover numbers since the COVID-19 pandemic? Um have you had any experience with that whatsoever? And then uh, is that something you're going to measure? It's, I haven't, I have not been tracking it. Uh, however, what I, here's what I do know. Uh, we are going to be doing research on the impact that this program is making. And uh, research is going to be an integral part of what we're doing at the, the Center for Rural Health Leadership. And uh, we're really going to focus a lot on the financial impact that this program makes. So uh, some of my professor friends uh, that deal in economics, especially uh, a lot of agricultural economics programs focus on rural health. So we're going to be studying all those things, the CEO turnover, uh, as well as other metrics that look at the economic impact uh, that our program will be making compared to a control group of uh, hospitals and their CEOs that aren't in the program. So we'll definitely be looking at that. But I can tell you, in our first class, we accepted 23 uh, CEOs or aspiring CEOs in our first cohort at the Center for Rural Health Leadership. At the beginning of that class, uh, there were four individuals who were not CEOs and uh, that who are now CEOs. So 22% of our first cohort became CEOs uh, after they started that program. So I can't, can't claim credit <laughs> for, for that, <laughs> but it certainly helped. If you ask any one of them, they'll tell you it certainly helped. Uh, like one young man, uh, he had applied for a CEO position right at the beginning of the program. And he leveraged the fact that he had applied to the certification program, to the board that he was interviewing with, and wow. and that helped push him over the finish line uh, That's great. to get the job. And others, they grew uh, and were promoted within their own organizations. And then one other young man, after the right after the program ended, uh, he was able to land a job with one of our program advisors. The program advisor had helped put the program together, and he one of his comments was when I showed him the curriculum before the first class, I said, oh my gosh, he said, I wish I would have had this book when I became a CEO the first time. It would have oh, saved wow. me a lot of heartache and time. So he, re- he knows the importance of this. So he hired one of our graduates so he could retire. <laughs> so, Oh, wow. That is fantastic. So we know we're So do you know, 
Do you know if any of the of those four or so were any of those due to turnover in their own organization? So you said a couple of them were promoted within their organization. So there may have been some turnover in their hospitals for them to take those positions. Yes, I know that that is true in in one instance. Uh, okay, uh, but uh, that's something that is very important: CEO turnover, and it's one of the things that we are going to be looking at. It's just. You caught me too early on that question. I don't have an answer. Right, right. <laughs> well, Bill, once again, I want to thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. I often say that in rural health, we are doing God's work. And uh, as a minister myself, I know the importance of uh, what local health care actually is, and it's ministry. It's uh, the folks that we see in our congregation, the folks that we see in the grocery store. We build relationships, and, you know, oftentimes we uh, interview individuals that are on this program that are— maybe not as lucky to have that relationship. So they don't know what it, the experience is all about when you walk in uh, to the corridors of our hallways here at the hospital and see a face you know, that you see maybe three or four times during the week, and you build that relationship. And uh, I've had the opportunity, Bill, to uh, kneel at the bedside uh, of a child, uh, delirious. I've had an opportunity to uh, be with a patient before their surgery uh, and say a prayer with them. And that's the unique opportunity that I'm given as a CEO. But I want to tell you that uh, as much as this is God's work, what you're doing is also uh, what I would declare as God's work. It's uh, something that's that's needed. Uh, you are ministering to those of us who minister. Uh, you are giving us some great advice and direction, and it's such a great need. Uh, we are, in fact, at times, as you indicated, in this cocoon. You know, we often feel we're alone. Uh, we're, we're here. We're making very, very important decisions. And, you know, many times our bench strength isn't very good. I mean, we have one or two people that, you know, are the, are the go-getters and small rural health can't afford to hire a bunch of them. And so, you know, oftentimes when you hear that leadership is lonely, it truly is. And uh, to have programs like you offer and the vision that you had is is really so important, uh, I believe, to the growth of our hospitals in rural America. So, Bill, thanks so much for being part of the program today and for the work that you're doing. Thank you, JJ. I appreciate it. And now for our favorite part of the show, the voice of the patient. Hillsdale Hospital was where Nancy gave birth to her three children. She also had a couple procedures done at the hospital. She said she was treated like a queen during each visit. However, in the May of last year, Nancy had to make the painful choice to send her husband, Jay, into the McRitchie Skilled Nursing Facility at Hillsdale Hospital for long-term care. Because despite every effort made by her family, Jay's dementia was getting too difficult to manage alone. It was time, she said. He needed care beyond what I could give him. We did everything at home, just like they're doing here, but it became too hard to lift him, and we didn't have the lifts at home. My kids were also involved in the care for him, too, and it was hard on them, but we did it. I would do it forever if I had to. Nancy said that the hospital has been such a godsend taking care of Jay, especially during a pandemic. Because of the state of Michigan's visitation restrictions, she wasn't able to be in the same room as her husband for several months. That's been hard, she said. But he's been taken such good care of here. And the staff here have been phenomenal. I couldn't pick a better place, seriously. 
Everybody from the ladies from the switchboard to the nurses have all been fantastic. In March, Nancy was able to see Jay in his room for the first time in person. The nurses had decorated his room with all the pictures her and her family had sent over. He looks so good, she said. I thank the staff here for what they've done. They love their job and it shows. Everybody I've talked to has been so kind to me and my family. Wow, what a great experience and a great story. It's always impactful when we hear those stories and they're directly from our patients and their families and the people who are most affected by the care that we're providing. Well, before we close, Bill, we like to do a fun segment uh, with our guests. And uh, we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience and maybe one of your favorite memories? Maybe it's not an experience, but a memory that is unique to rural life. I would say farm life. Hauling hay in the summertime, that's something that's oh, yeah. gone by the wayside because they do those big round bales these oh, days. Yeah. But uh, some of my buddies and I, we had a, a hay hauling crew that we put together. Talk about hard work. Oh, my gosh. Yes. But it helped get you in shape for football season. That's for sure. Lifting all sure those did. bales of hay and sitting around the farmer's uh, table. They always got lunch or dinner or both sometimes. Uh to uh, for a great uh, great meal and then would go skinny dipping in the salt pits afterwards to oh, cool yeah. down oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. so it taught me a lot to the point where what's interesting is in even though i'm from a small town if you're an nba basketball fan most people have heard of jerry sloan jerry sloan he passed away not too long ago but for years he was the head coach of the utah jazz and so jerry grew up in the same county as me he's a little bit older than me but when the Utah Jazz were at their heyday, Carl Malone and John Stockton were the two stars that played on that team. And you know what Jerry Sloan had them do in the offseason in the summertime? He had them come back to the Sloan farm and haul hay. Yeah. That was what the impression. Yeah. It made such a big impression on Jerry that he wanted his two stars to know what it meant to haul hay. Now, in a small town, you can imagine – you can't hide as Carl Malone or John Stockton. <laughs> uh, everyone knew they were in town, but oh, yeah. that's the positive impact that Holly Hay can make. It'll make a star out of you, I suppose. I suppose it will. I, I remember, Bill, myself growing up in rural uh, country here, is that uh, when Dad would come home and he would say, I talked to the neighbor, I'd always, oh, no, I know what comes next. And he needs help bailing hay. Yeah. And you know what? That pretty much ruined your summer. Uh, but but it builds uh, builds certainly character and a, and a great opportunity to uh, to work in in the fields. And and Bill, uh, obviously your hard work has paid off over the years. And we just thank you so much uh, for being here with us today and for sharing uh, your story and your career. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll talk about recruiting and retaining the entire workforce in a rural hospital environment with one of Hillsdale Hospital's very own. So be sure to tune in. And as a reminder, we are collecting patient testimonials to be featured during our Voice of the Patient segment. If you have an experience to share about the positive impact you or your loved one has had as a patient at a rural hospital or healthcare provider, call our direct-to-voicemail line at 269 447 1265 and share your story with us, or you can send us an email that we can read on your behalf at marketing at hillsdalehospital.com. You just might be featured on a future episode of Rural Health Rising. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. 
Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Bill Oxier, CEO of the Center for Rural Health Leadership. For more interviews like this and more information, or to share your patient or family testimonial with us, visit ruralhealthrising.com.